This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me as we continue our series of studies in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 22, looking this morning at verses 23 through 33. Hear the Word of God. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third, down to the seventh, After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You were wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. It comes to us with the full authority of God Almighty. It is not for us to judge it. It is for it to judge us. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that are receptive to learn from your word, to hear what it is you have to say to us. Father, we pray that you would not merely store our minds, but that you would change our hearts, and therefore our lives, as a result of our study of your word this morning, we ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Jesus is in the temple courts. It is Passover week, the week in which Jesus himself would be the Passover lamb, the week in which Jesus himself would die. He is in the temple area. He is interacting with various leaders of the Jewish people. Uh, As we saw last time, there were a group of disciples of the Pharisees as well as uh, partisans of Herod who came to Jesus and had a question having to do with taxes and whether or not it was right, whether it was proper for the Jews to pay taxes to Caesar. And, uh, you know, Jesus sent them packing. Well, then another group, as we see today, comes to Jesus and they have a question for Jesus. They're going to challenge him with... This is a different group. Verse 23 says that same day Sadducees came to Jesus and Matthew notes for the benefit of his readers that 
They say, the Sadducees say, that there is no resurrection of the dead. You live, you die, that's it. Now, it's also true of the Sadducees, they didn't believe in angels, which actually comes into play, uh, that belief of theirs, in just a little bit, as we'll see. But their position is there is no resurrection. That's, that's not anything to be found in Scripture, or at least the Scriptures they adhere to. Because for the Sadducees, the only thing authoritative was not the entire Old Testament, but the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the, the five books of Moses, the so-called Pentateuch. Uh, they held those five books to be authoritative. They had no use for all the traditions like the Pharisees did that, for them, uh, were also important for understanding God's will for us. For the Sadducees, traditions aside, everything in the Old Testament is aside except the first five books of the Bible. And so with that belief in mind, and everybody knew that belief, Jesus was aware of that belief, the rejection of a resurrection, they come to Jesus with their question here in verse 24. And as we look at the passage, it, it divides into two parts. It's, a, again, a, a very basic question-answer outline. First of all, we have their question in verse 24. Teacher, again, kind of a polite acknowledgement of Jesus, uh, even though they really oppose Jesus. Uh, and they probably were glad to see the disciples of the Pharisees set off defeated because they had no use for the Pharisees. And the feeling was mutual. But like those who came to Jesus before, they come to Jesus, very polite, teacher, Moses said, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for her. Now, that they based their question on this provision that was in the Old Testament, uh, in the first five books, the books of Moses, this law that was, was given uh, called the Leveret or Leverate Law that uh, was given to provide an heir for a family to keep property in the family. If someone's married and to his wife and he dies, then the man's brother uh, is to step in and to marry the woman and have children by that woman to preserve a line for that man. Now, by Jesus' time, uh, that was not practiced. Typically, the, the brother had the, the option of declining to do so. Uh, this didn't start with Moses. It was regulated by Moses. In fact, in Genesis 38, even before we come to Exodus and uh, Moses, there, there's a reference made to that provision. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth, you know that this law, this provision, plays a prominent role in that book in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. And so that's the background, this teaching of Moses for their question. Now, the question, they hope, reduces the idea of a resurrection to absurdity because of the complications that would be involved. And so they come with a question based on that provision of Moses. Uh, verse 25, there were seven brothers among us. Now, they, they kind of paint it as a situation they were familiar with. It probably is a hypothetical. I mean, the, the, just the, the seven, uh, seven marriages is, is so far as to be unlikely. And there is in the apocryphal book of Tobit, uh, a story about uh, a woman who was married to seven different brothers, and that may have inspired their their situation here. But they say, you know, we 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 know of a situation. You know, I have a friend who uh, we have we we know this situation where there was 
uh, with their seven brothers. And the first married, then he died, he left no children. And so each of those brothers marries the woman, and each of those brothers dies. And then verse 27, after them all, the woman died. Now, I don't know if that's meant to be humorous or not. It strikes me, at least in a, in a, in a slight fashion, as somewhat humorous. I mean, you know, how could the woman help but die after enduring seven marriages in the same family? <laughs> well, maybe she died because there were no more brothers and she was distraught. Uh, but after them all, the, the woman dies. Now, here's the question. Verse 28. Okay, Jesus, we've set the scenario, giving you the law of Moses on which it's based. Here's the scenario. Laid it out for you. Now, here's our question, Jesus. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? Well, they all had her. Now, you can, you can almost see them, you know, as they, as, they, as they hit Jesus with this question, kind of the elbowing, you know, and kind of the smirk. Because they no doubt have used this before. Nobody can answer it. You know, it's, it's, their, it's, their, it's their winner question. In, in, in the debates, this is the one that put them over the goal line. You know, this is their question. You've set this situation up. It's biblically based. And now they ask, okay, Jesus, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? They're all married to her. Whose wife will she be? That's the question. But Before we move on, I do want us just to think briefly about that. Because you have people today who, who hold a view very materialistic view, uh, not in the sense of, of acquiring things, although that may be part of it, but materialistic in the sense that material, what we see and touch, is all there is. You know, that, that this universe is all there is, and life in this world is all there is. And you live your life, and you die, and that's it. You exist no longer, except perhaps in a memory of those who have, as a memory of those who have survived you. And such people think of themselves as being sophisticated and, and beyond religious nonsense. Well, as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. You hold the same position the Sadducees held 2,000 years ago. They say there is no resurrection. They believe you live, you die, and there's nothing more. And so the view, if that is your view, is, is nothing new. It's been around a long time. It's not as though that view would have surprised Jesus or his disciples or anyone who's followed Christ ever since. There's nothing new, nothing novel, nothing uh, innovative uh, about that view. It's been around for a long time. And whether the question, the difficulty is the one they pose for the resurrection or eternal life uh, or not, uh, the fact is that view's been around. Other people may have other objections what they see as other rational reasons for not believing in eternal life, uh, surviving your own physical death, or in the case of the Sadducees, in a future resurrection. And so that's the question that they bring to Jesus. But what we want to concentrate on is Jesus' answer. And that picks up in verse 29. We've seen the question, second half of the passage, then Jesus' answer. It, it, it basically has three parts to it. One, he addresses them and where they're coming from with a question. Two, he answers their question. And then three, he challenges their unbelief. So three parts to Jesus' answer. Dealing with them, dealing with their question, dealing with their unbelief. So let's look, first of all, as he deals with them. Jesus answered them in verse 29. You are wrong. Let's stop there. Let's think about that. 
very politically incorrect thing to say, especially in matters of religion. It's interesting today, people will acknowledge that, say, in accounting, there are laws that must be obeyed. There are principles that must be governed. Uh, you can't just make it up and do it your own way, or the IRS may give you a phone call or come knocking at your door. Uh, in engineering, there are physical principles and laws that must be obeyed, or that bridge may well collapse. In law, while there is room for interpretation, there, there, there is set law. Those laws must be obeyed, or you may find yourself before a judge. People acknowledge that. There are, are, are firm, objective, fixed principles. But for some reason, when it comes to religion, people think anything goes. You know, as, as if truth, as if religion is, is this wax nose, and you can just shape it and make it whatever you want it to be. You know, the hallmark, uh, the tagline of that view is, well, you know, I like to think of God as being like, this. You know, I like to think of God as being like that. What is that saying? What that's saying is God doesn't really exist. He's something that exists in my mind, and I can make him whatever I want him to be. But you see, we're ta talking about what you imagine. We're talking about the God who is there, who exists objectively outside of you, and what that God is like. And how can we know what he's like except by what we observe of what he reveals himself in creation and how he reveals himself in the Bible, in the scriptures. What God is like is not subjective. It's very objective because he is who he is. Now, let's, let's reduce this to absurdity. Let's say we're talking about me. And you say, you know, I like to think of Pastor Allen as being a brilliant athlete. You know, he's fast, he's strong. Uh, he runs marathons. He wins sprints. I mean, the guy's just amazing. And someone else says, well, I like to think of Pastor Allen as being a, a superhero, crime-fighting superhero, mild-mannered pastor by day, but a, uh, a staunch defender of, of, of justice and liberty by night. Well, it, it really doesn't matter how you like to think of Pastor Allen, you know, to, with, with all reverence, quote the, the scriptures, I am who I am. I mean, granted, I am very tired this morning. It was a long night last night uh, out. Uh, well, that's for another time. But, um, you know, it's, it's really irrelevant how you like to think of me. The question is, what am I like? Well, the question is, what is God truly like? You know, we're not at liberty to devise God in our own image. And so there are ideas people have that are, in fact, wrong. And Jesus did not shrink back from saying, you are wrong. You're mistaken. You're in error. You're far afield. You were wrong. Why are they wrong? Jesus says in verse 29, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. They're, they're ignorant on two counts. They're deficient on two counts. One has to do with content. They don't know the Scriptures. Now, yeah, they can quote what Moses said, but it's one thing to be able to quote proof texts to support some preconceived position. The cults do it all the time. It's another thing to know the Scriptures, to know what they're teaching, to know what they're saying, to know what they are about. And again, we're not at liberty to take the Bible and just say, well, there are many interpretations. Now, granted, a verse here or there may have different understandings, but as a whole, 
And certainly in, in many of its particulars, the Bible is all too plain and all too clear about what it teaches. And Jesus says to the Sadducees, you're ignorant of the Scriptures. You don't, you don't know the Bible. Yeah, you can quote something Moses said, but you don't understand the bigger picture of what the Scriptures are teaching. So they're deficient in content. They're also deficient in faith. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now think about it. They, they object to the resurrection. They have some reason they think that that's rational, that they put before Jesus here. But really their problem is, one, not only do they not know what the Scriptures teach, but two, they don't conceive of God as capable of bringing about a resurrection of anyone. It's a problem of lack of content, deficient content, but it's also a problem of deficient faith. They don't think God can do it. And that's why Jesus says they're not only ignorant of the Scriptures, they're ignorant of the power of God for whom nothing, including a resurrection, is impossible. So the first thing Jesus does is challenge them personally. And we saw this before when, in, the, in the passage just before, last week. Uh, when, when they came to Jesus with a question about taxes, the first thing he says is, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? First thing he does is deal with them with the, the, the insincerity of their hearts before he then deals with the question. Well, same thing here. You are wrong. You're mistaken in your whole outlook, you, fair, you Sadducees, because you don't understand the Scriptures and you don't have any confidence and understanding of the power of God. Well, then he answers the question. And you, we have to see that this is absolutely new revelation. The, the Old Testament does hint in places or speak in places of a resurrection. Uh, but it's not something that's you know, over, overwhelming in its clarity. It's hinted at, it's mentioned, but not a lot is said. But then Jesus says something that's completely new to answer their question. And Jesus should know. Second person of the Trinity. He knows what he's talking about. And he knows what we're going to have. And so in verse 30 he says, For in the resurrection, now notice, like the Sadducees, he doesn't say at the resurrection, at that event, but he says in the resurrection, you know, in that, in that state, in that condition of living that's brought about by that general resurrection at the last day. You know, Jesus, the trumpet will sound, Jesus will return, the dead will be raised up, those who died in Christ, everlasting life, glory, those who died in their rebellion against Christ, everlasting condemnation. But in that future state... For those who are in Christ, those who are not will be in hell. This will be a completely irrelevant question. But for those who are in the new heavens and the new earth, who are in glory. Jesus says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, Jesus says a couple of things here. First, marriage will not take place in heaven. Why do we have marriage now? Well, we have it for companionship. We have it for uh, the, the proper context in which to bear and raise children. Now, in heaven, there will be a vast number, but a fixed number. There will not be no more death. There's no need to replace. There will be apparently no bearing of children in heaven. That will be a fixed number of the elect who have been redeemed by Christ. And Jesus says there will be no marrying or giving in marriage. The husband marrying his wife, the wife given to him in in marriage. But, he says, they would be like the angels in heaven. Now, a lot has been made of that. Uh, what is the point of the comparison? Uh, 
First of all, Jesus is not saying they will become angels. And when you die, you don't become an angel. Angels are angels. You're you. Uh, you will be in heaven as a redeemed human being, but you will not become an angel. Angels are angels. Um, are angels sexless in the sense, are they male or female? Well, we don't know that much about them. They're spirits, for one thing. When they are manifested, they uh, are manifested in male form. You think of Michael or Gabriel. But yet angels fundamentally are not men. They're, they're spirits. Uh, do they have something innately male or female about them? I don't know. But the point of G- what Jesus is saying here is insofar as marriage and procreation go, we will be like the angels, a fixed number, not in marriage. Now, question arises, especially if you have a happy marriage, will that be a loss? Will that be a, a disappointment? Short answer, no. Because marriage itself, even the highest joys of marriage, are but a foretaste themselves of what we will enjoy in heaven, both in our relationship to our Lord but also in our relationship to one another. The intimacy, the fellowship, the communion that you have with your husband, that you have with your wife now, will be all the greater in heaven. And yes, I think we will remember and know that, you know, I will know I was married to Barbara in this earthly existence. I think that memory will be there, although we will no longer be married in that sense. Remember, our wedding vows are to, you know, to be faithful to one another uh, until death do us for as long as you both shall live here in this world. You know, when one of you dies, the other is free to remarry in the Lord, as Paul teaches. But I think we will remember that. I think the relationship will be better than it ever was. But our relationships with one another will all be much better, much more satisfying, much more fulfilling than they ever were before. And I'm not talking about any kind of physical intimacy. I'm talking about the spiritual fellowship, soul to soul, person to person, that we enjoy now to a degree, but that's still hindered by sin, both within us and the other person in this world, that we will have a fellowship both with Christ and with one another that goes far beyond anything we experience now, so that even the highest pleasures of this life, even the highest pleasures of marriage, dim in comparison to the enjoyment we will have with one another. A New Testament professor who said of this passage, the good news is you will love your wife as never before. The bad news is, so will everyone else. Um, we will still remember the memories of marriage, I think, uh, and yet those relationships will all take on a much different dynamic in heaven, more like that of the angels, whose supreme delight is in God, in being with him and being before him. Uh, now, I do want to say, too, that I don't think he's saying here we'll be like the angels. We believe we will be resurrected. We will have physical bodies. We'll be in a new heavens, a new earth, a redeemed creation. But I think at this specific point of not marrying, of marriage being a foretaste of that heavenly relationship, the relationships we'll have, uh, that we'll be like the angels in that regard. So you have to ask, what is the point of that comparison? Jesus isn't saying we'll be like angels in every way, but in this specific regard that we will no longer marry or be given in marriage. But that which marriage signifies, represents, will be fulfilled when we are in glory. And so that's how Jesus answers their question. They seem to think it's just going to be more of the same. And Jesus says, no, there will be a fundamental transformation in how God's people relate to each other in heaven 
so that that which marriage points to will be fulfilled and marriage itself will no longer be present in heaven. And now he takes up their rejection of the resurrection. So he's dealt with them, with their ignorance he, and the, the wrongheadedness of their position. He's answered their question. And then, third, he deals in his answer, he deals with their whole, resurrec- their whole rejection of the resurrection. Verse 31, ask for the resurrection of the dead. One of Jesus' favorite expressions. Have you not read? You know, we saw that. It occurs ten times in the Gospels. We saw it back in chapter 21, verse 42. Have you never read in the Scriptures? Have you not read? You know, I gave you this book. Didn't you study it? Didn't you look at it? Have you not read? What was said to you by God, and notice he quotes here from Exodus, from a book they would have considered authoritative. So he accommodates them, quotes from Exodus, a book they acknowledge to be God's word. Have you not read what was said to you by God? But what he quotes is not what you would think of as a proof of the resurrection, and yet it is. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Jesus says he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I've read that and kind of gone, huh? Now, how does that answer their rejection of the resurrection? We have to dig a little deeper into what Jesus is saying. You have to think about what he's saying here. As he quotes from this passage, we read earlier in Exodus, where the Lord reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is Jesus getting at here? I think three things. First of all, the faithfulness of God. This is a covenant verse. You know, the essence of the covenant God makes with his people is I will be your God and you will be my people in an everlasting covenant, an everlasting relationship. And that was how God revealed it. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their descendants in faith, including you and me here today, if you believe in Christ. Now, God pledges himself their well-being. Pledges his own destruction if he's not faithful to his promises to them. But if his ability to protect them is only good for this life and death actually separates them from God, then of what value is his promise? What value is is that covenant? And so God's covenant relationship is something that is for all time. It doesn't end with death. And if it does end with death, then God's promises are no better than anything you or I could say. Because I could promise to love my wife until I die or she dies. Even I can do that. But God's promises are good beyond the grave. He makes an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your children after you. And so Jesus is quoting not so much a resurrection proof text, but a foundational covenant verse. Who God is and his commitment to his people. A commitment that transcends death itself. Second, the hope of God's people. The hope to continue after death. The hope of eternal life. And here's where you get into the tense of it a little bit. And this is the ESV study Bible and other Bibles commentaries specifically focus on this. Um, But I think the whole covenantal aspect is is important. I'm indebted to my New Testament professor, Knox Chamblin, for that insight. Because I really don't find it much anywhere else. But I think he's, he's spot on. I think the covenant relationship is what Jesus is pointing to. But then the hope of, of our continuing to be after the death of our bodies and hope of the resurrection, that Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And it had been a couple hundred years from Jacob to the time of Moses. 
But God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Jacob, I was the God of Isaac, I was the God of Jacob, and now I'll be your God. He says, I am. That that implies a continuing relationship with Abraham. Luke, in Luke chapter 20, in his account of this, says that to God, all men are living. Now, to you and, to you and me, when someone dies, they're no longer a part of our lives. But to God, all people are living. He is aware of them, even after their death. They are still living to him. And so the point here is not is that when Abraham died, God didn't or when Abraham died, God did not cease to be his God. I was God of Abraham, but I am. I continue to be the God of Abraham because God Abraham was with the Lord. Um, in Matthew chapter eight, Jesus uh, speaks of. Uh, the faith of the centurion, and he, he commends his faith, and he says, I tell you, many, this is 8.11, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It certainly implies not only their continued existence, but their resurrection, because to eat, to enjoy a feast, implies physical being. That we're not just spirits, but they're physically. And we will feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he's still living as far as, they are still living as far as God is concerned because he is still their God. Do you understand that's a bit of a subtle point that, that hinges on the tense. I am, not I was, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then third, the resurrection of Christ himself. Now, of course, as Jesus was saying this, that had not happened. But it's that resurrection that secures the covenant. The promise of God to be sure, but it's accomplished and applied through the death and resurrection of Christ. That's where we're cleansed. That's where we're reconciled to God. That's where we're able to stand before God, clothed in Christ, and be acceptable to Him. And it's on that basis, the basis of Christ crucified and resurrected, that Paul can give us those magnificent words in Romans 8, uh, where, where he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am sure that neither death nor life will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The faithfulness of God and His covenant, the hope that we have, of being with God after death in, in that intermediate state, our soul with him, our body in the ground, but then ultimately when Christ returns and our bodies are raised up and our soul glorified, reunited with our glorified body, as Paul spoke of, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15. And the, the, the accomplishment of Christ, who has won that, who has made that secure through his own death and resurrection, which Paul describes as a first fruits of that general resurrection that is to come. In verse 33, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. They were probably as astonished as anything at the fact that he'd, he'd answered the Sadducees. No doubt many of these people had been plagued by this pesky question that the Sadducees kept bringing up, and Jesus shut it down just like that. They were astonished at his teaching, and they were astonished that he had silenced the Sadducees on this point. The author, Philip Yancey, describes a woman he knows whose grandmother is buried in an Episcopal church cemetery, graveyard, uh, underneath a 150-year-old live oak tree in rural Louisiana. And she has a gravestone, a marker there, 
that has one word on it. Waiting. Is that your attitude? Do you wait for, are you looking forward to, do you even long for that resurrection? Because that's the culmination of our salvation. Not just to die and our soul go to be with heaven, disembodied forever, but to be raised up, resurrected. Is that, is that something that you look forward to? Or is that something you doubt? Does it have such an air of unreality about it that it just doesn't play much, much of a part in your thinking or that you doubt that that even could ever occur? Well, let me ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus came out of the grave that first Easter morning? If you don't, what are you doing here? If you do, why do you doubt? Understand the, script, the teaching of Scripture. Have confidence in the overwhelming power of God to do what He said He will do. Let's pray. Our Father, we do look forward to that glorious day when the trumpet sounds, when Christ returns, and our bodies will be raised up imperishable, incorruptible, to live in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, there's much about that we don't understand. But we do know what Scripture teaches. And we have every confidence in your power, Almighty God, to bring it about. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.